On New Classical Tracks, we love sharing with you the most exciting new recordings every year. And when you enter our weekly CD giveaways, you show us how excited you are about those recordings, too. You can find out which albums made the list of 10 most coveted new releases of 2021 by going to yourclassical.org. This recording was number one. It's Paris by Hilary Hahn. I'm Julia Mocker, and this is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. Hillary, I would like to start by just asking how you are, what's life been like for you and your family over the past year during the global pandemic? What a question, right? <laughs> how has life been during a global pandemic for the past year? Um, I mean, it's been life during a pandemic. <laughs> I think we all have a differing experience of it. And I think it's important to remember that, um, you know, it's possible to have multiple different kinds of experiences within a new circumstance. Um, I found that it takes a lot of energy to adapt. And so for me, I'm focusing a lot on the moment and on as a performer, you know, not knowing what's coming up, just on getting myself ready so that whatever happens, when it happens, I'm ready for it. And do I remember that you have a couple of little ones now too, that you're Mm -hmm. spending time with and how old are they? They're two and five years old. It's life with a pandemic with little kids. I mean, I think everyone can kind of guess how it is. Um, but I mean, they're 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 fine. I'm really fortunate that we're all in good health, and you know, it's not an ideal circumstance to be in in a pandemic to not be able to have much of a community to rely on and to um, socialize with. But at the same time, it's a different lifestyle, so. I've just been thinking about, you know, what what is good and what is challenging and sort of what works in this time that could carry forward into the future. I have to be a master at adaptation with my with my career just because I show up for a concert and I get two rehearsals with an entire orchestra and then we play a concert, right? And so I have to be able to pivot in the moment and then Also with travel, there's so much you can't control. The flight is delayed, you know, under normal circumstances. It's, it's a lot of unknowns and I enjoy adapting and figuring things out. So in the course of the pandemic, I was on a sabbatical for a year starting in September of 2019. I've played two weeks in public since then. Um, I played two weeks in the fall, but I've done some virtual stuff and I think it's, I think it's interesting to see what musical experiences people are enjoying and what like what the experience is for an audience and what the experience is for a performer because I really do think these some of these formats are now a lot of these experiences that we're having virtually would be doable in between more typical performance experiences and it's a chance to connect with people more globally all at the same time I had a listening party for my album over the weekend and there were people from literally all over the world. Like there wasn't a part of the world that wasn't covered and I would never have been able to hang out with them in one place, but doing it online is now a really interesting way of connecting and people have a way to um, understand the experience so that they can connect with it personally as well. 
Oh, that's interesting. So were they able to actually, like, communicate directly with you, that mm-hmm. many people? How did you manage that? Well, we were all in a chat together while we were listening. It was really cool. People from South America, people from Europe, people from Asia, people from Australia, people from everywhere, Canada. <laughs> were there any themes that you heard from them as you saw them commenting about the, the music they were hearing? Well, it was the first time that I've sort of felt an in-the-moment reaction since I started my sabbatical. Usually in concert, there is the audience reaction. It's a lot of people very close to you, and you can sense it. I did have two weeks of in-person concerts in the fall, and I really could sense the audience there, but then I couldn't see them after because it it just wasn't safe to do that. And normally I do a lot of post-concert signings and stuff like that. And I really meet the fans. So it was really nice. It was, it's possible to connect and to connect around the same thing. And the music was playing. So there was a lot of just talk about the music. You've mentioned your sabbatical and then the pandemic hit. So I'm curious, was the original intention of the sabbatical able to be fulfilled or did that change in any way? That's a good question. The point of a sabbatical for me is to not have any plans. So just to see where life goes and see what I can learn about my, I guess, my natural patterns and then incorporate those into my planning ahead for my concerts. So basically with my concert life, I plan two or three years ahead. And I'm always really happy about the stuff that arrives when it finally arrives two years after the idea was first started. And um, at the same time, you can build on a whole series of things that ultimately may not grow in the same direction that you are growing as a person. And you just keep being excited about what's coming up and then you arrive at that day and then you plan something else off of that. And so for me, it's just really helpful in a sabbatical to stop and not have expectations and not have goals and just see, okay, is am I a person at this point in my life <laughs> who likes to get up early? <laughs> am I a person who is more creative or more like want to go out hiking or, you know, what, what kinds of things do I want to do? What do I want to find out? Um, And am I a person who really misses being on the road or do I actually suddenly love being a homebody? And of course, that was tested in a different way than I expected this year. But I actually wound up spending the first three months of the sabbatical. It was a year-long planned sabbatical. I spent the first three months just uh, decompressing from basically the prior 10 years because a lot has happened for me in the last 10 years. And the last time I took an intentional sabbatical was 10 years before. So I was kind of letting things settle, letting the the cards fall where they may, and just taking some deep breaths and being in the moment and just sort of enjoying a more, a smaller routine day to day. And then in my second semester of sabbatical, (laughs) I wound up taking a bunch of art classes. I was going to a lot of concerts. I was going to museums. I had a subscription to the ballet. I never have a subscription to anything because I'm traveling. So it's unlikely I'll be able to make all of the concerts or all of the performances. So I thought, Ooh, I'll do that thing. (laughs) I'll get a subscription. And then, um, the third semester was getting used to the pandemic 
and also realizing there was a lot I didn't know about the world and about America and about social context and inclusion and uh, social justice and all of these things that I should have already known about as an American, but somehow, um, you know, had the privilege to not be forced to learn in in the way that was reflective of, of reality for so many people who don't feel seen and heard and who aren't seen and heard. And so I then pivoted from getting ready to go back on on a performing circuit, um, which I was starting to do already in, in March. I was getting back in playing shape. I pivoted from that and I just put all my work time into learning and researching and examining and trying to see how I can do a more um, representative and more equitable approach to everything I do, including all of my projects. And so um, I was just putting those things in place and thinking about that and um, really examining it. And then the fourth semester was um, basically summer. And so by that point, I had some really favorite hiking places and um, I was starting to think about how to re-enter performing when it was clear that performing would look different. So that was the sabbatical. And then in September, I did a bunch of virtual stuff. I did virtual or virtual residency. I commissioned, I did world premieres of things I had commissioned. The post-production of the Paris recording was finished. The um, AI community I co-founded with, um, sort of AI and music combination community I co-founded with the roboticist Carol Riley, who's a friend of mine, that we launched also in the fall. And we're really trying to create a positive space for AI scientists and musicians and creatives to interact in a positive way and a productive way in the future, because those fields are going to overlap a lot. And so the more we can increase communication amongst the people who are actually doing the things that are in those communities, the better. That's interesting. I want to ask you how you see those communities overlapping, and then I want to dive into your recording. Sure. Well, um, our organization is called deepmusic.ai, and we first started by commissioning three composers to work with existing AI tools. Um, I played a piece by David Lang, and Michael Abels wrote a piece that was premiered by Dominic Cayley, and Dana Leong wrote a piece, a symphonic work that he premiered by recording himself playing multiple instruments and synthesizing some others because right now it's not really orchestra time. Um, but the idea behind the community is that AI is here. AI is in everything and it doesn't need to be scary. The whole conversation is not about whether AI will take away jobs. The conversation is more how can AI really be helpful to the fields that it's entering and how can we as musicians also positively influence the future via influencing um the direction of some of these things that are being created with um, AI. So basically, the long story short is that the thing that makes people people is their creativity and emotions. And those are things that go into art. But those are really hard things for AI to capture. The spontaneity, creativity, um, the connection between people through art and if AI can get to a point where it can, quote, understand 
that process, then the other programs that AI is involved in, the other applications of AI in the world that art is sort of a blueprint for, that art is the litmus test for, will be improved as well. Because there aren't that many people working on these things at the moment. And once code is developed, once certain like methods of working are developed, those become the basis. So right now is a good time to actually have a conversation going, not just AI presenting to artists and artists listening and vice versa, but really trying to find the people who want to talk to each other, who like talking to each other and connect them and also maybe highlight some of the issues people are concerned about, maybe just present those and say, hey, okay, so here's what we found. And we're just following the natural flow of what evolves out of these conversations and this community that we're starting to build. But it's important to to work on that behind the scenes stuff in addition to all of the fun things that are being produced through AI and the arts. Well, let's dive into your recording. We'll, we'll travel to Paris now, which is one of your favorite cities. Why do you love Paris so much? And tell me a little bit about um, your relationship with this orchestra and how the two of you have grown together. Well, I love Paris because it's a great city. <laughs> it's, hard to, it's hard to put it all in one sentence. Um, Paris is a place that I've visited since I was a teenager, and it has this mood to it. It's really an evocative city. I Maybe I know too much about the history and I'm just applying it to the city, but I love the feel of the arts in Paris. There are so many beautiful museums. There are all these parks that are just works of art in their own right. As you walk through the city, you're walking through basically an art installation, it feels like. And it's a huge place. It's been for many different reasons over the centuries. It's been a place where a lot of different cultures meet and collide and overlap and um, enrich each other. And also it's been a place where artists really meet up and discuss things and compare ideas, especially back in the days of the Salon when um, there would be these, I guess, house parties for artists to all meet up and display their works and have discussions. I think about Paris when writers used to frequent certain cafes and anyone who was visiting Paris who wanted to meet their friends who were artists or writers, they knew where to go to find them. And then they would just stay up all night hanging out and talking about art. I just really love that about that city. I can feel it when I'm there. It, it feels like the, that history has carried through. You have a very special relationship with the orchestra featured on this recording, and it sort of culminated with your artist residency in 2018-2019, and that also helped to inspire this recording. Can you talk about that initial inspiration, please? We had this artist residency that I did with Radio France, and it included a lot of touring with this orchestra. It included concerts in Paris. And we started out with some summer festival performances in France. We also, yeah, so I had solo Bach recitals for, for Radio France. And 
The very first concert that we all did in the residency, I realized that the residency had pretty much everything except a recording coming out of it. And we, by that point, knew that we would have the Rautavara world premiere posthumously. We also were just playing together in a way that felt like magic. And what I've learned is that the collaboration is incredibly important for a recording. And that if you wait two or three years, the collaboration may have changed. Because I've worked with this orchestra a lot through different music directorships. They're the orchestra that I work with in Paris since I was a teenager. And so we've worked on a lot of repertoire and an orchestra always evolves, a, a soloist always evolves, um, conductors always evolve. And when you have something great in the moment, if you can capture as much of that as possible, it's really important. So um, a combination of things led to us, Miko and I, Miko the conductor and I just putting our heads together and saying, where in the season can we make a recording? Because <laughs> everything was already planned. Like, where can we... Where can we do the pieces that we want to do? Which pieces do we want to do besides the Rautavara? And we added uh, Prokofiev one and Chausson to the residency for this recording. The Rautavara was a piece that you were hoping to do, and Miko is one of the leading interpreters of his music. There is a moment, though, when you weren't sure it was going to happen. Can you talk about that, I guess, sort of a magical situation that actually occurred after his passing that made this actually come to life? This piece is a story of relays, um, literally passing the baton, <laughs> although maybe literally isn't, isn't quite apt, but, you know, there's a conductor's baton that got, got activated at some point in the process. But the first idea for it came actually from, um, from a collaboration I did with Miko Frank and this orchestra on Rautavara's violin concerto, I had already commissioned Rautavara to write me a, a, a duo piece for violin and piano for my encores project. And I premiered that and then uh, recorded that. And Miko was an incredibly close friend of Rautavara. He performed everything there was to perform for an orchestra, the operas, the, the symphonic works, and... Also, just personally, they were incredibly close. So when he asked me to do the violin concerto that Rautavara had already written, that had already been premiered, I jumped at the opportunity because I loved the piece, but I hadn't learned it before. Sorry, lots of noises. They're dragging furniture now. It's a furniture studio, so every so often they rearrange. Oh no, now they're vacuuming. Can you hear it? No, they're using a shop vac. This is spectacular amounts of sound. Oh, no. They're using a bandsaw. Can you hear that? There's no way you don't hear that. <laughs> okay, what was I talking about? Oh, Rautvara. Um, the composer was ill at the time that um, I performed the violin concerto with Miko and with the L'Orchestre Philharmonique de Radio France, but... He heard the concert recording, and I had talked with Miko during the rehearsals for that concert about potentially um, another piece by Raltavara to commission Raltavara to write another piece for us, maybe another violin concerto. And that's the last I heard of anything because Miko said, well, I don't think this is a good time because of his health, but if I see him soon and I can talk to him about it, I will. 
So I didn't hear anything else. And it turned out Miko had talked with him. They discussed the idea of serenades instead of a concerto because uh, Raltavara wasn't wild about writing the same format again. Um, but he had been very interested in the serenades. And so they settled that that would be it. And then Miko went back to touring. And the next that we heard, Raltavara had passed away. So it seemed like he hadn't gotten to any more of this of this piece. Then at the funeral, Miko was at the house with Rautavara's widow and she showed him this manuscript for two serenades. It was titled in French, which was very unusual for Rautavara. Usually he titled things in English and everything has Finnish um, titles as well. But it was clearly the piece that he was working on for us. It was almost done. The violin part was done, the solo violin part, the orchestration was done for the first serenade and the second serenade, the orchestration was complete about halfway through. And then there was a very clear sketch that had been already um, edited and worked over by Rautavara that he was just orchestrating from to kind of have final parts. So it was very, very clear what the score was going to be. And at that point, Kalevi Aho finished the piece in the in the style that Rautavara would have wished. And Kalevi was a student of Rautavara's and also a great Finnish composer in his own right. So it really um, kind of came full circle when Miko and I premiered it and um, Rautavara's community was there, but he was not. But he was there in spirit. It is the last work that he wrote. He was such a, I mean, he, he lived to be in his 80s and he was a protege of Sibelius. He was such a figure in the contemporary music scene in the 20th century. And he, he had tremendous influence on a certain type of composer who wanted to work with a more tonal palette, but still be innovative and individual. I think that Rautavara's writing made it okay for people to express themselves in a beautiful, lush way. He composed a lot around the themes of of life and death and darkness and light and sort of the boundaries between them. So it's really fitting that this final work of his ends on a more, I think on a broader spectrum of a serenade for my love, which was for his wife, but it's also a look back at a lot of his work and a lot of his styles combined with new material. The Serenade for Life, which he passed away while completing. He didn't get to complete the orchestration and it's very clear where it stops. At, at one point, the, the stage, the lines are just suddenly empty and you turn the page and it's just a blank page. Um, but 
it's pretty fitting that he left those two pieces as his final works because Miko, Miko has told me, you know, of course, you know, Johanny Raltevara would want to have the last word. <laughs> and so he left the last word. But it's also a tribute, you know, it's a tribute to life. It's a sort of meditation on love and looking back at one's life um, at the end of one's life. The poem by Ernest Chausson is a work that you say takes your breath away. Why is that? It's it's a huge piece. It's not the biggest, longest piece in the repertoire, but it's a symphonic orchestration. And yet Chausson knew how to take the violin, the solo violin part down to nothing. It really goes from as big a sound as you can make with an orchestra to as small a sound as you could have on a stage. So when the orchestra enters, they set the, the whole framework for the piece. And then when I enter, Everyone, after the end of my first note, has stopped playing, and I then set the framework for the rest of the interpretation together. It's a piece that I can't drive. I have to be free within the piece. I have to be supported by the orchestra and the conductor, but also they need to have their own interpretation that I work with in my interpretation. And so having them take ownership of their work is something that gives me goosebumps. Like every time I finish my part and then the orchestra takes it further, it just is... is spectacular and it it is such a dark but beautiful piece it really feels like a requiem for the composer himself is the piece that put him on the map as a composer and um in like in the course of a few years after that he had passed away in a bicycling crash and so it's really for me also breathtaking that this phenomenal work exists like he wrote he got it written <laughs> he was destined to write this work and he wrote it and we get to play it and hear it um, as long as we want Prokofiev's Violin Concerto No. 1 had its premiere in Paris, which is why it's on this recording. You've said that this work is very life-affirming for you. What do you mean by that? I don't know. <laughs> That's a good question. I don't remember what day I said that, but I love this piece so much. It's really, um, it brings you through, I think, the entire 
landscape of what it is to be human. It, it, it's like Prokofiev had a Rolodex, not only of techniques and musical um, styles, but also all the emotions and all of the um, scope of the, the, the soul. And somehow he gets to all of it in the course of a pretty short concerto. It's like you step on the train and you have this wild journey. And then when you arrive, you're like, whoa, what just happened? And where am I? And that was amazing. (laughs) So for me, it's really this larger-than-life work that takes full concentration and really carries you as both a performer and a listener. What was most memorable for you in putting this recording together? The collaboration. It was a labor of love. Like, we all really wanted to make this recording, and we all knew that we were making it because there was something really special happening musically in this collaboration. It's just one of those moments in time that you can't manufacture and you can't predict, it, but it's, it's palpable. And when you're playing with colleagues who are building on what you're doing and giving you musical ideas to build on and they're playing things in ways you could never have imagined but you love it, it's just, it, it, it's, it's breathtaking and it's amazing. And every time I hear the recording, I, I'm thrown right back into those, um, those feelings of working with them at that time. It was a really poignant experience of making music with people. So I really treasure that even more now because it's not an inexhaustible resource. And it's, it's a really, really crucial part of being a musician to be able to have those experiences. Hilary Hahn's new recording, Paris, featuring her with Miko Franck and the Philharmonic Orchestra of Radio France. The most coveted disc of 2021 is voted on by our listeners. To find out which albums made the list of the 10 most coveted new releases, go to yourclassical.org. And if you're enjoying new classical tracks, the best thing you can do for the show is to tell somebody else about it. Help spread the word and take a moment to rate and review us on our podcasting app. Thanks to Valerie Kaler, our producer for New Classical Tracks. I'm Julia Macher. 